Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, have you reached the verdict? The verdict Welcome to the John and Jordan on Justice Podcast, your weekly deep dive into personal injury and wrongful death law. Touching on everything torts, legal tech, trying cases to verdict, and the outlandish stories that come with them. And now, here are your hosts, John Fisher and Jordan Reed David. Thank you for joining us again. Today, we have the privilege of being joined by Ross Guberman, an incredible guest that we're lucky to have. And it's good fortune that he was able to join us this afternoon. For those of you that don't know, uh, Ross is, in my own estimation, one of the leading legal writing um, lawyers in the nation. Uh, he's an accomplished author, an accomplished attorney, and he does the speaking circuit and the training circuit to help not only practitioners, but even judges uh, learn how to write better. He's, uh, for those that don't have it, he's written Point Made, How to Write Like the Nation's Best Advocates, which I think is an incredible book. Point Taken, How to Write Like the nation's best jurists. And uh, more recently, he's developed and launched the brief catch tool, which is an add on for Microsoft Word. And it helps you with editing and legal writing. And I think we're up to what Ross brief catch 3.0 now. Sure feels that way. <clears throat> and I will tell everybody out there. Um, it's hard to introduce someone like Ross, but I can't I can only think of doing it one way, which is my truth. You know, when I went to law school at the University of Miami, Brian Garner was like, synonymous with legal writing and if you could only read enough of brian's literature and incorporate enough in your practice you'd be successful and maybe a scalia adjacent but in practice years later i will tell you i have found your publications your tips your tools and really on a day-to-day -day, your assistance through brief catch to be the most meaningful in my legal writing experience as a state and federal you know trial and appellate lawyer so i want to thank you in advance uh, and welcome you to the show Thank you. Although I'm kind of jealous you got to go to law school in Miami. <laughs> yeah, it's sure, sure never, the only one. It's yeah. still law school, though, Ross. This is this is <laughs> the only truth to that. Um, so I think a lot of our listeners out there, they're mostly trial lawyers. There's a few transactional lawyers and who knows, maybe some other people out there who are just aspiring to be lawyers and haven't figured it out yet. But um, John and I are in the trenches of state court in Florida, mostly. That's how we're spending our days doing discovery, cranking out motions to compel responding to motions for summary judgment or filing them. And I know that, you know, in your career, you have the privilege of working with some really prominent attorneys, some of the nation's best, some of the nation's best jurists in federal court working on big regulatory things. But in the trenches of personal injury litigation in Florida, motions are flying, responses are flying. And I think I just want to start by asking you for a bit of advice for those people out there who feel like they are lost and you know, they're never going to convince their opponent, the opposing counsel of their position, but they really want to convince that judge who's got five, 10, 15 minutes. Um, what are some of the best tips you think these days to get a judge's attention? Yeah. I mean, no doubt it's harder than ever, uh, especially with all the, the lockdowns and COVID stress. A lot of courts have loaded do dockets and are also uh, still, I think, especially in the state courts, getting used to having to read all these briefs on iPads. Uh, whether they want to or not. So definitely a good a good challenge there, how to get their attention. And it's never easy. Um, any any state court judge will tell you, at least off the record, uh, they're just completely overwhelmed and find a lot of the motions and oppositions and replies uh, not very helpful. So uh, the, the one thing, and by the way, I'm also like very well aware, I need to remind myself, very well aware that the vast majority of lawyers in this country 
uh, just need to get their work product filed and don't have time to try to, you know, make it into one of my books, so to speak, uh, probably, you know, 99.5% factor in that category. So the one you, you, you mentioned kind of the bread and butter of litigation, uh, discovery disputes, you know, motions to compel, motions for protective orders, uh, probably not on your side, motions to dismiss, but on your opponent's side and summary judgment. The, the, one, the one thing I would say you know, without getting into any of the niceties and nuances is if you were to just, you know, ask yourself as a trial lawyer, what is the one bit of news you're about to make in this motion and lead with that? Uh, it would probably solve, you know, lots and lots of problems people have getting, getting kind of trapped in formulas and balancing tests and boilerplate and talking how, about how dishonest their opponents are. Now, every single case that my opponent cites is an opposite. The question is, what is the one interesting thing about this discovery dispute? What is the one thing that the judge couldn't guess word for word you're going to say? And that's got to be more than just, we want these documents and they won't turn them over, right? Everybody says that. The question is, what is the one thing you would get to know if you had those documents that right now you're not able to know? And, and lead with that. It's really a content, content strategy more than... Yeah, I, you touched on time, at least uh, the availability of time to judges, which is fleeting state court judges. And uh, I've heard a lot of people talk about it. But I think, you know, you have an interesting perspective in that you talk with judges an awful lot. Time is, is valuable to people and you have to be respectful of it. And so we, we all talk about brevity, mostly in the appellate context, brief should be brief, etc. But I personally feel like the same applies to motions. You know, I have read more motions than I can count where the first page and a half says nothing says comes now a bunch of gobbledygook that I don't care about. It's already in the case caption. And then it has like three paragraphs of this is a car accident case, like, you know, things that really don't move the needle. Uh, and I've never been a judge uh, and not likely to be one, but I, I try and think as if I was one. And I, I personally carve a lot of that stuff out. Um, where do you kind of fall on the, you know, it's okay to be formulaic or put boilerplate or do you just advise get right to the point? Well, some of this is out of a lot of litigators control. You have, you certainly have like templates in different state courts with these various sections, like the standard of review. And of course, in those cases, you do what you're supposed to do. You want to, you want to you know, talk about thinking like a judge that you want to, you know, imagine just, just the same thing people do and they scan, you know, online the, the paper that they read, your eye is going for something interesting. So you could have that boilerplate opening for two pages, you could have the summary judgment standard that everyone knows by heart. You could have a lot of back and forth, but the judges, if the judge reads it, the judge is gonna be searching and searching until finally there's something again, that's newsworthy, that's distinctive and just try to try to really, you know, track the judge's attention and eye to that. So it's, it, it's, often, it's often some kind of contrast between, you know, your line of work what the plaintiffs have to say and the defendants have to say, but you want to have that juxtaposition up there so the judge knows, hey, by the end of this motion, I'm going to have one of two options. Here's what the plaintiffs say. Here's what the defendants say. And of course, you want to be pushing the judge to adopt yours. And I think in your case, well, I don't know which side you're on, frankly, maybe plaintiff, maybe defendant in personal injury. You want to frame it so it's persuasive, but you also want to be boiling down the dispute to what, what the judge is really going to have to be deciding between. Right. That could be procedure. That could be substance. That could be about a duty. Could be about damages. I don't know. 
but you want to ask yourself what at the end of the day when it's down to the wire and the judge has to rule and move on what are the two remaining thoughts going to be one side the other side and how do i articulate them so my my version right the plaintiff's truth the defendant's truth sounds more sensible than the other for sure and i think there's you know in my experience it's obviously judge specific issue specific but um, I think the proper use, and you know, your books touch on this, but a, a good proper use of headings that not just give a roadmap. I mean, I think that's helpful no matter what to the reader, but that draw the reader in and say, I want to read this section. Uh, we had Harvey Sepler on a couple of weeks ago as an accomplished appellate writer. And he, he, you know, often, I mean, he taught me in law school, but he often talked about how each section should kind of be in and of itself a compelling story. And when it ends, you've just won that point. They, they shouldn't be used to just break up chunks of text, but they should each bring the reader, in this case, your judge, to the conclusion that you want them to have. Um, and so I, I strive, you know, in my legal writing, at least, to give enough headings where it's a good roadmap and uh, easy to digest, but not too much where, you know, if you had a table of contents, it would take four pages, you know? Yeah, that's right. And I mean, it's interesting when you see really talented trial lawyers. I mean, I, I don't, I don't see a lot of trials, you know, even not even experts, but I hear people are incredible with juries. And then you see often when they're writing, they sort of lose, lose that section by section focus and have a lot of paragraphs that frankly, if I read them, I wouldn't know which side they were on. They're just sort of expository rambling on about cases and what happened and standards instead of really, really starting with the heading, having a clear goal, the way I believe good trial lawyers do with juries, they have a clear goal and they have a clear idea up front what they want the jury to be saying in the deliberation and structuring the paragraphs within the section uh, in a very linear way, right? Without having a lot of neutral sounding statements that simply describe the law the way you would, would in a memo. Um, that's, you know, that's, that's not easy, right? You have to frame the case law, frame the standard, frame the balancing tasks, frame, frame the burdens uh, so that although you're presenting them and explaining them, you're always spinning them so they sound like they're favoring your side. Where do you shake out on, let's assume there's some freedom outside of local rules or rules of procedure that cabin you. Uh, where do you shake out on trying to be creative when it comes to formatting? Everything from font choice, <clears throat> sizing, to honestly how you structure the page. Um, Cause I've, I've often thought over the years, maybe just breaking up how it just looks, right? Like quick look up, they all look the same. If you could just break that up. So I try and incorporate cover pages sometimes, but you know, maybe you can shed some light on how uh, jurors out there feel about that. Yeah, so I, I mean, I, one thing that's easy to forget is that all these different courts attempts to mandate what, what often seem like ridic are ridiculous kind of minutia, you know, exactly like the font size of the footnotes versus the font size of the text in the body and how wide can the right margin be and what fonts are banned. Although those, although those often seem over hyper controlling and they are, and sometimes judges need to calm down and realize people don't have hours to track every single crazy preference you have formatting wise, they're all really for a larger purpose, which is to make the reading process, I don't, I don't wanna say more enjoyable, that'd be a high standard, but you know, more manageable. So it's easy to forget that with all these crazy requirements, but if you think about it that way, a lot of this becomes easier, right? So if you just think, what would I wanna read? Even something like, what would I, wanna, what would I like to read if I had to read another opinion as you're doing your legal research? 
you'll answer a lot of those questions, right? So you probably, most people want more navigational tools. You don't hear people complaining about too many headings too often, right? They like having headings and subheadings. They like having a lot of white space. They like having, you know, larger versus smaller font. Um, they like wider margins. And frankly, as time goes on, a lot more people up and down the food chain, different generations appreciate tables, charts, graphs, you know, bullet pointed lists, enumerated lists. Frankly, because I think we're all, we're all, we've all become fairly impatient readers. I think 30 years ago, you didn't need to worry about these things. You could just have paragraph after paragraph. But if you take your cue again for the, from this obsession over font size and font type and margins from judges, and you really think of it as an opportunity, a lot of these things do pay off, the ones I just mentioned, right? The tables, the charts, the graphs, the bullet points, mm -hmm. and the like. And also probably make writing a little bit more fun, fun too, not just better for the readers. Yeah, John and I had an appeal. Um, we were fortunate enough to win in state intermediate appellate court here down in, in Miami. Um, and although we didn't win on this issue, I think in hindsight, I think it probably gave the judges a degree of confidence that we were committed to this issue. We had thoroughly and exhaustively researched it and everything. But for the first time in our career, we actually created an appendix of, it was a jury selection issue. And we basically made a table for the court and said, here's every prospective juror from the record. Here are the pertinent portions of the record where they said the offending, you know, comment. And we internally hyperlinked them to the record. And it was painstakingly long to do that. I'm not going to suggest it was easy, but I think it was mm -hmm. a worthwhile endeavor because <clears throat> we knew most of the judges in that court, they're all reading on iPads and how convenient would it be for them and their clerks if they could just not even have to transition from that document, click it, bring brought to where they need and be brought back. Do you see, I mean, you're, you know, we're looking microscopically at Florida predominantly, although we practice some in Georgia, but nationwide stepping back, do you see a growing trend of practitioners using hyperlinks, either the you know, authority that they're citing or record sites? And do you see judges liking that? It's, it's really interesting, uh, interesting development. Like right now, you know, while we're talking is hyperlinks. So I, I've actually, like I had, a, I had a bunch of new judges recently and I just did a quick poll in the room and it was, you know, I can't remember exactly, but it was something like one third thought great, one third thought the world would come to an end if people hyperlinked and one third don't know, didn't know what a hyperlink was, or they thought it was something else or didn't have an opinion. So that's sort of, that's sort of what I'm seeing. So if you take your example, so it sounded like you were actually hyperlinking to the perspective jurors, uh, like the voir dire or something that's, right. you know, textual um, documentary. If you actually showed judges that they would all love it, right? Now that they understand you're simply saving them a step and making it easy for them to see what, if they're gonna address the issue head on, they, they need to see. I think there's probably more, more concern about hyperlinking to case law, but mainly for practical reasons, like, you know, which, you know, I don't wanna name names of legal research companies, but you know, who, who exactly are you gonna to cite to and what reporter and so forth. But again, although there is resistance to hyperlinking, if people just see it in action, they see that it's not scary, it's something good. And it also, besides saving people time trying to find actual text that they need to see, it also um, makes could make the, the blue booking problem disappear and, and make it so lawyers who are already stressed and overworked don't have to spend so much time on pin sites and 
blue booking, which I think we would all agree would be a very good, good, be a thing. better, a little bit of a better world if we didn't have to yeah. do that with such pain sake. I know I'm, I'm uh, eating all the air over here, but I'm going to, I'm going to kick John off by asking the question. <laughs> I know he's wondering because John and I laugh about this all the time. Ross, are you a, you must justify your paragraphs or are you, you can leave them left aligned and that doesn't bother you. So, so just, just a, you know, a general method point is I don't ever think about what I like or don't like to the point where I no longer have any feelings or preferences about writing myself. I've purged myself because I don't, I don't care. All I care about is what do the top practitioners do? And number two, like what do the consumers want? Like what do clients want? What do judges want? So on that front, honestly, I cannot give you an answer one way or the other because it is sort of split. I can give you the arguments. So the argument for fully justifying is it's seen as it's perceived to be more professional or cleaner. Uh, the argument for not fully justifying and having a jagged right margin is that you then have more natural spacing. Uh, so you don't have different spacing line to line to make up for the, you know, the uh, different lengths of the words, then you don't also need as much hyphenation. Uh, so it's really, it's probably a little bit of a, a draw. I, I, I would add though to my, I mean, my main criterion is always what do a lot of great legal writers do? For something like that though, I would also say like, look at a book like Matt Butterick's Typography for Lawyers because he's really thought this through. And unless he's changed his mind, I believe he says um, jagged, jagged, not fully justified. No, oh, now I can't buy the book. That's it. I, yeah. I can't support it. I've been... <laughs> You know, it's funny to I've, think that I've way. actually found 99% of the time people, one reason I don't have any opinions is when people ask me formatting questions, they've already made up their minds, right? <laughs> I mean, it's you're just, right. And, this, it's, and it's a tough true. world. So I'm kind of in favor of that. Like, let people do what they want. If they want to justify, let them justify. Hey, oh, I'm sorry. I, did, I, I was waiting to jump in. So, like, <laughs> the only thing I was going to say is that, you know, Ross, you, you made a good point about, you know, you kind of have to do to your reader, you know, not to what your own personal preference is, because my personal preference is size 14 times New Roman is the most ungodliest thing I've ever seen in a writing. Like if somebody wrote that to me as a judge, I'd be like, Ugh, I got to read 17 pages to read what I can read in six. You know, so you, your objection is not the Times New Roman, it's the 14. It's the 14, you know, but I so I we used to use as we're talking about fonts. What we, we thought that Jordan had was old. Is it Baskerville? Um, he had read something, and, I, and it might it's have an been from, from Harvard, yeah. that it was the most persuasive font to No, use. maybe it was Garamond, John. I don't remember. No, no. Anymore. Well, Garamond is where I, we're going to get to Garamond. So now I, I switched to 12-point uh, Garamond, and like I can't read anything else. If I get something in like Cur if I have a court that wanted Courier New, like I'm going to throw up. That's just Gar Garamond must have some lobbyists here in D.C. on K Street. Yeah, People I mean, I'm telling. I don't is, know. I know Helvetica. Helvetica has its own film, apparently. Yeah. Film about a font. So. Well, well, it's interesting. We're we're sitting here talking about fonts, you know. But when you're when you're reading and writing so much, what's visually pleasing to you kind of helps your argument, right? If somebody and and again, that's my personal preference. So to your point, you got to give it to someone else. If somebody wrote to me something in Garamond, in twelve. You know, and then someone else did in, in Times New Roman 14. I'm like, Ugh, I'm going with Garamond. And that's weird to think about that, but it already seems better to me. Hmm. You know? Well, and it is easy to make fun of our profession for focusing on these things. But if you look at advertising, the advertising industry, 
spent spends billions, you know, researching these mm-hmm. things, you know, what fonts, you know, pictures, arrangement of, you know, or think about like restaurant menus. So much money has gone into studying how the typography of restaurant menus affects which entrees you purchase. So there's, you know, there's something to it. And of course, you know, you have you have a very clear aversion to a font. Uh, so for you, it's easier to know. But the truth is, we don't always know unconsciously how these things might affect us. In ways yeah, and it didn't realize. and it didn't used to be that way. And, you know, I've never thought about, you know, the the psychological subconscious you can tap into with the way you something is written. You know, you never think about that. I mean, I've never really thought about that, you know, um, you know, and I think Jordan was the one that started using Garmon. I was like, man, I really like this. Well, I got so sick of losing. I said, there's got to be a change I could make. And since Surely we changed, something. since like, we yeah. changed to Garamond, we win at the trial court level. And I'm the lawyer who writes, this is a car crash case. That's, that's sentence number one, the one that Jordan said don't do. That's what I do. But I add where my client sustained a traumatic brain injury, life-altering surgical intervention mm. for spinal. Like, I add all that in the very first line about, this is a really serious case, and my client's life has been forever changed, and here's what I need. You know, so it's interesting. It's interesting. Well, Ross, I one of the things, um, I think it was point-made, because, yeah, I was reading, like, some of the nation's best advocate. It was point-made. You know, you did a really good job in that book, I thought, from a formatting standpoint of putting in uh, meaningful excerpts to demonstrate the point uh, and give an illustration of this is how the best do it. But when I was done reading that book, um, I was left with the impression that, and I don't know how to change it. I mean, I'm sure there's a way I have to commit to it, but I think uh, some of the best writers, they have this way of being incredibly sterile. And I don't mean that in a bad way, like certain points of their brief or motion, very sterile, like not that persuasive. And then before you know it, you get to the end of the the section and you're like, wait, I'm actually convinced. And they weren't yelling at me through words. They weren't being dramatic. They weren't using a ton of, you know, analogies. Somehow they got to me and I didn't even realize it. Um, and I often find that I think it's not a degree of formality. It's just whether you're conversational or more just to the point. Um, do you have any you know advice on that, whether or not uh, there's a time and a place for it, or you should just stick with be more black and white, what a law clerk kind of wants to read? So one 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 thing that makes people enjoy, you know, mandatory workplace reading, like you you have to do when you're a judge, is when you feel like you're learning something, even if it's not your profession or your field. So, I I don't know, you know, when you say that some of the parts are are less are less um, animated or less rhetorical, I'm not sure if this is what you have in mind. But if I take you know go to the earlier point about the traumatic brain injury, personal injury case. There's a way to there's a way to talk about you know the science there right the tragedy the tragedy that's probably very relevant that on the one hand doesn't sound condescending like it's not like you're lecturing the judge but on the other hand uh, sounds helpful like okay like you know a lot of people have terrible brain injuries that and it would not necessarily be easy to assess damages in the abstract so I want to sort of show you. I want to show you, I really want you to, I've, I've done the work as the lawyer, I've done the work to understand the science there and I want to share it. So the same thing does happen with really great advocates when it comes to the law. They, they are genuinely interested. I mean, it's also, they have to, it's the duty to their client, but they, they want to explain the law you know, in a way that makes the judge feel smarter. And the, now the judge thinks, hey, I get it. And then you, then you're sort of 
able to take that new insight and shape it to your client's needs. So that's probably what you're noticing. It's the kind yeah, of it people, is. I mean, I've, they actually I've read enjoy writing in that way. It's like, okay, I've read these briefs. Fun. They make environmental law look more exciting than, I don't know, the, the, the most interesting copyright infringement case of all time. I don't know. They make everything come to life, but yet in a very, they're not jumping off the page shouting, you know, I, I say there's a, in my personal experience, it feels like there's a lot of similarities in terms of the efficacy of advocacy. If you're at an oral argument and you're making fun of your other side or you're cutting them off, I don't think you've ever had a good day in court. By the same token, if your reply to a motion is nothing but condescension and you know ridicule and pointing at all that other stuff, judges, in my experience, they're not excited by it. Uh, if anything, they'll probably just turn it over and be like, forget this guy and forget this client. And so you're not really doing your client a service um, and it also doesn't take any skill. I think people forget that part. On top of the other issues you raise, the, the, the bickering and the name calling and the like, yeah, this is so egregious. And anybody could do it, right? I mean, you could have like middle school students pretending to be lawyers, you know, for school, and they could, they could also trade all those barbs. So it's, it's I, and I think sometimes it's genuine. I think there are a lot of very frustrated lawyers who genuinely feel like their opponents are you know, unethical or incompetent, but it's still very easy just to simply mm. uh, perform, right? Those are performances. And just as, you know, you, I don't know, I think you I think you have a kid or two, you know, and kids bicker, like one's probably right, but you just don't want, it's like one probably did steal the crayons first or whatever it is. You really, you just can't adjudicate it, right? Yeah, you just that... want them both to stop yelling, even mm -hmm. though you know you're not being the most fair, you know, umpire. Uh, it's it's similar. Um, yeah, and the thing is, take your point about environmental law, my whole career really started when I when I actually analyzed uh, John Roberts' brief, you know, well before he was the chief justice, uh, because, you know, like you, you were saying about it, something about written about environmental law, I had heard, you know, that Justice Ginsburg back then thought this John Roberts brief was the greatest brief she'd ever read. And it was about, you know, administrative law, Chevron, environmental law. And it's, it, it really was, it really is just an incredible work. And I really like led to, you know, wrote, I wrote about that. Then I got the book deal. So there you go. I mean, that's, he's someone as an advocate. I mean, obviously like any judge, he's controversial as a judge, but as an advocate was able to do exactly that in a lot of very dry, boring cases, he was able to make them come to life. Yeah, I think there's a, a lot of credit to the individuals that can do that. I mean, you know, the ability to write is, is a, I mean, look, I, I can, I can undersell or oversell myself. Like I'm not a very good writer. And when, in terms of a legal writer, right. I was a, I was an engineer before I was a lawyer. I'm very analytical. So when I, but when I'm having to teach like the benefit that I can have, and I think Maybe Ross, you can answer like as judges, they're dealing with so many different issues, right? They're not like our realm of, of advocacy is in I deal with like plaintiff's personal injury work. That's what I do day in and day out. But they're doing, you know, at the state court level, they've got, you know, if they're only on the civil side, then they're doing foreclosures, they're doing contract law, they're doing first party property claims, they're doing injury claims. So there's so many different avenues. And while we may know the body of law tremendously in our particular area, you know, the judges may not have that benefit. So do you find it important to kind of have a, a teaching moment for the judge, right? Like you, you to teach them of why is this important? 
what should I be important about? What should I be looking for? Show them that you know the stuff and then kind of explain what you need, you know, from a legal writing standpoint. A hundred percent. I mean, so if, I mean, if we go back to the original example of the injury, the brain injury, what a lot of plaintiff personal injury lawyers do, I've noticed, is summarize all the doctor visits and all the, all the exams. And it's, you know, it's very exhaustive. And if you actually read all of it slowly, you would realize how terrible the injury was. Mm-hmm. Um, now, you'll note any pl- per plaintiff personal injury lawyer that do, who does well doesn't do that with juries because the juries would be completely asleep, right? right? So there's, you have to really ask yourself when you are an expert, either you're, you're an expert because of your practice or you're an expert even just in the one case. Good exercise is, let's just assume the court forgets every single thing about all the evidence except for one thing. Like, what would that one thing be? What would be the most important thing you'd want us, the court to see when it comes to the, you know, the diminishing cognitive ability? Right. Uh, what would that actually be? That allows then the judge to be ready to start reading some of the more tedious, you know, recitations and, you know, details uh, because you have you have actually gotten across the one most important take on the most important bit of evidence. Okay, I mean that makes. But sense. I don't see people doing that. I mean, you you were you were like being modest about your writing, but the truth is, even though when I you know when I used to fly fly more and I'd say what I did, and people were always like, oh, I'm surprised. I thought lawyers were all great writers. The truth is, a lot of lawyers, I think most lawyers, are better orally than in writing, not just. Yeah trial lawyers. I mean, I've known, and it's more and more true as time goes on. A lot, yeah. a lot of people struggle with writing. I, I think I've, I've become an ex- extremely comfortable in my oral advocacy, right? On the fly presentation because of that preparation, you know, and I've worked hand in hand with Jordan. Now we have an, uh, you know, a director of an, a, does the appellate side of our firm where I was writing a reply to a motion. I wrote the, I said, here's my draft. You know, I haven't added one section. Just let me know your thoughts. He scrapped it and rewrote the whole thing. And not be, not in like a negative way, but because it's just from his legal writing perspective, it was better to do. He was like, you're you're focusing on this too much, so you're actually giving their argument some kind of credibility or weight when you should. It's not even a. It's it's not really a thing, right? So it's yeah. And so it, it's Those, good. Yeah. Those it's, experiences could be demoralizing, though, and I've noticed that a lot of people who actually enjoyed writing at some point in their education or even their career have a couple of experiences like that and they sort of throw in the towel Nah, i i I don't i have no ego when it comes to writing i i know my limitations you know jordan look have i had i had a judge strike my motion that i did in one day because she said there's no way that i wrote this in one day so clearly i had an opportunity because i didn't confer with the other side right Mm -hmm. one of those local rules and so she struck it for non-conferral and said, there's no way that you wrote this in one day, so you had more time. When really I did it, I sat down, spent 14 hours, knocked out a Daubert motion. <laughs> so to me, I'm like, well, the federal court judge thinks I'm taking five days to do what I did in one. It's, know, a, it's a compliment in a, a way. Compliment. Just didn't have good reward. But, right, but, but I, I didn't. It wasn't necessary. But the point is, is so you know, obviously, look, as my career has developed, you know, we have taken you know, my, what are my strengths? What are my weaknesses and how can I make those? And that's kind of why me and Jordan work very well. He's, he's a great oral advocate. He's a great writer. You know, I mean, he's, he's subscribed to your books, you know, things that, and he's taken what I've given him. And it's just the way 
that you don't think about like who is your reader what is the point you're trying to make here you know it's kind of like when i think about trial and cross-examination it's like well why am i asking this point if i'm not going to talk about it in closing right it's kind of the same thing with your writing style if you're not what's the point of using this statement and then kind of changing that verbiage and i give it to jordan and, and he'll cut it up and i have no I'm like, you know, well, you're, you're very complimentary and I'm, I, I'm grateful for that, but I think Ross, something you said really resonates with me. So, uh, in law school, 90% of my free time to the extent I had it was basically volunteering at the local public defender's office at state court. And that was a tremendous experience. The other 10% briefly, uh, I spent at a private white collar criminal defense firm, small shop Hmm. and the senior partner, the guy who founded it. Uh, although brilliant and accomplished spanning decades was, I don't know, maniacal. I mean, this guy, anything I wrote, anything anybody wrote, he sat, he made you print it in paper. He sat in the conference room and you got more red ink back than you had black ink when you printed it. It didn't matter. 15th draft. It felt the same. And that was, you you said demoralizing. Mm -hmm. I quit the firm. I couldn't, it's whether I could take it or not. I was like, this is not the environment for me. Mm-hmm. I found it to be like a bridge too far, a bit unhealthy. But ever since then, I've had now I'd say it's developed into a healthy sense of paranoia where, all right, practice does make perfect. The editing process is critical, but there's an extreme end that uh, I 100%. Know, I, and I'm, I mean, I've, I've certainly seen lots of markups or red lines or revisions over all these years. And I don't want to say that this is always true, but generally the kind of people who do that are not that great, not as great at writing as the younger person assumes is the case. Because someone who's really, truly good at writing is usually more confident and also more willing to defer to the original writer and kind of know the difference between Mm -hmm. things that really need to be changed and things that are really just, you know, you want to change because you you have your own issues or your own idiosyncrasies. Yeah. And I think, you know, in our firm, we, I mean, uh, we take more of a hands-off approach. I mean, everybody that, that we choose to hire is already competent and capable. So we try and be available to the extent that they want it to give help mostly on substantive stuff that they might not be familiar with. But I also think, and this is kind of a point I wanted to address with you is that everybody, not, I don't want to say everybody, most lawyers have a unique style, even if it's in the nuance and subtlety, and I, I fear that, um, based on what I read, there's a lot of, on the defense side, usually, because it's larger firms, probably a bit more template, expectation to just file what's been filed before. And I fear that people's uh, individuality gets lost. Because I feel like as a lawyer, at the end of the day, the most value you can ever bring a client is the value that you uniquely hold. Because we're all eligible to walk into a courtroom and talk. We're all eligible to e-file something. So what makes you a little bit different? And I think John and I really take pride in doing things our way while trying to be persuasive and effective. But where do you kind of shake out? Because I know you've dealt, you know, you deal with big agencies, you've dealt with huge firms, um, and I don't have that experience. So what are you kind of seeing in some of the larger environments with the ability for people to be creative and have some freedom? Well, I think I think across the whole profession right now, there there is a there is serious concern about you know automation and technology. Um, taking over the traditional role of of the lawyers, right? And maybe, as you say, homogenizing uh, everything. And you know, I know. I mean, just to give an example, there's you know, it's kind of trendy now to have software that gives you like analytics on the court. You know, how many seconds on average a motion to dismiss sits there, and you can just kind of imagine 
people, you wouldn't need lawyers, right? You would just be, it'd be like being an odds maker and you'd give clients advice based with math, mathematical precision uh, based on past, you know, past results. So it's a legitimate concern, right? Uh, that as time goes on, that'll be the case. I think the, the, the more optimistic way to look at it though is if, if what you're saying is true, that people have, you know, judgment, experience, individual, individualized takes, what's the best way to allocate all that? And I would argue that it's not in, you know, document review. It's not in, you know, a lot of the more, it's not in like looking up 500 cases about a negligence standard in Florida. It's kind of a judgment, strategy, giving advice, making the big picture calls about, you know, whether to settle. I think that's probably what's going to happen is <clears throat> that will become more the role of the lawyer as a lot of the more day-to-day -day work, whether people like it or not, is going to be automated soon. Yeah, I think we even see that, I mean, depending on what legal research tool people use, it doesn't matter. I think the, the trend is obvious, which is that uh, it's nudging you. The artificial intelligence is nudging you where you really should be. Mm -hmm. And it's helpful today. It might replace you tomorrow, not literally, but yeah, I do think that's the trend. And I, you know, John and I talk all the time. Part of this podcast, the reason we started was to talk about legal tech. I, I think it's an, it's a great industry. You're obviously a, a part of it. I use brief catch all the time. Um, I am embarrassed to say every time I file a document, cause I'm under the gun where I don't use brief catch. I have a bad habit of going back and then using it. And I'm like, why did I file that? But um, your tool is really slated for the, the, the author. It's there to help me, the writer, or whomever's using it. It's really not replacing anything that I want to do. It's helping me do what I already wanted to do a little bit better with the written word. It's usually just cutting out a lot of words that I didn't need to be there, helping with, with punctuation and things. Um, but there are other tools out there, you're right, and I don't need to name drop anything, but that are really more geared to just replace the author, uh, pull in block quotes from cases, basically give you a brief, you know, here's, here's an example, our brief, you just put your name at the bottom. Um, do you think judges pick up on that? I mean, when they read something, they just know, like, I've not literally seen this before, but I mean, this clearly is not an original work product. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you have, you know, not to knock legal zoom which i think is an incredible company but you have that kind of feeling sometimes it's it's the equivalent of legal zoom it's like a do-it-yourself motion or brief i mean i think that's for example i think that's often true on like the prosecution side in the criminal law the motions are all the same i mean they're almost word for word the same um now you know some of that makes sense right you have the same you know in that case, like same Fourth Amendment, Sixth Amendment issues over and over again, you are going to end up with the same block quotes, no matter what. But there will always be a need to adapt all of, all those, you know, building blocks like the case law, not only to the client and the facts, but to the client's particular goals. I mean, sometimes you might have a different approach if you're trying to settle in a you know you're drafting a motion uh, rather than you think you're probably going to go to trial. So, I mean, it's, you know, I, I don't, I, I was, was, I was gonna say I wasn't around when Lexus and Westlaw were invented. I think that's true. I'm not that old, but I, I know, I know either because people told me or I heard it that people freaked out when Lexus and Westlaw were invented. Lawyers freaked out. They thought this is, this is going to be the end of lawyers, right? It's now going to be super easy to research and we're all, you know, we're still around. I think there's 1.3 million lawyers in the, in the country. So it will be just, I think, a question of evolving as it has been since the beginning of time. 
in all professions when there's a sense of uh, technological threat. Yeah, we actually at Miami, when uh, I went to the University of Miami as well, uh, a little bit before Jordan, but our first year, they we had to go look in the books. Yep. Even though Westlaw, they were like, well, what happens if a brief shout out to Rob and the librarian. Yeah. And the, and the yeah, power, and the power to goes up. Yeah. You got to go. Look yeah. And, and a lot of people on the elder side believe that something has been lost. A skill has been lost because it's too easy to find sound bites in cases now. And you know, the old, the older generation always says they didn't, they need to suffer the way we did, but there's <laughs> yeah. probably something to that. There's probably some truth there. I mean, you can, you know, we do a good job of finding, like you can find a case in some obscure, place i mean i've got a motion on you know they're filing something where they're citing an unpublished michigan state case here in florida that talks about a particular issue or a you know district court of new mexico that you know without that you would never have that you would never have that resource or maybe i mean i'm just not i'm unfamiliar with it yeah i mean maybe you all are you know on contingency but in a lot of cases this is good for the citizenry, right? That they're not having, they're paying by the hour. They're not anymore paying lawyers. You know, what is often a burdensome hourly rate for a lot of people to spend five hours trying to find that obscure case in New Mexico. I think yeah. that, well, that's another part of this, right? It's not just about whether it's good for lawyers. Um, although that matters a lot. It's also, about you know, some the of these technological developments are really good for, for the people. Yeah, and we are on a contingency. So we only get paid to win. I don't get paid to right. work. Right, so you have an interest in being very efficient in your research. Right, There's efficient, no, uh, not yeah. not not underworking, but efficient. So if I can sure. go and spend less time doing work, that's what I want to do, right? So, I mean, it's a different model. It's not some the best lawyers... use of your abilities, right? Correct. Spending time. There are some issues that merit it, and you know, like a big summer judgment response, you just have to get right. And um, I often think about Daubert, to tell you the truth, Ross. When I think about, like, for me personally, the most challenging aspects of legal writing, it's on Daubert issues, either the ones I'm filing or the ones I'm responding to. And the reason is because everybody knows the most commonly cited Daubert cases and principles. But then you have to really, like John brought up teaching the court, you really, that's what it feels like. You have to educate the court on the science or the area of technical, you know, whatever it is, first to convince them that this is junk. Or vice versa, right? That, that this right. is a very legitimate thing, and I find that's where most of my time is spent. And it's a fine line about I always worry about going too far, but then I err on the side of caution. And so you have to give the judge all the all the arrows to be able to shoot him. You know. Well, it's I, I mean it's a very it's a huge challenge in the profession that you're equipping judges, and then it becomes the burden of the lawyers like you to decide whether methodology is appropriate or whether things are peer reviewed and so forth when by definition it's not your field and it makes it very very hard for everyone uh the whole dauber regime it's not yeah, easy i to... wish i mean it's a matter of budget and constraint i'm i'm a realist i appreciate that but i really do wish uh on daubert issues specifically courts availed themselves of like court appointed or retained experts kind of independently on an issue to the extent that that's practical i don't know I think in federal. I know it's been. I know it's been proposed that you'd have sort of like a directory of, you know, right. judicially approved experts. But I and you know, if we were to create a perfect legal system, no yeah. doubt about it. But I just realistically, I don't know how how yeah. it would happen. No, you'd there'd be imperfections. Well, because then they'd be right. like, but I don't be... know how you'd ever just. You know, there's so many things like that would be great, but 
I don't know how like realistically it would come. Well, then they become ar- arbitrators where they want to mm-hmm. get selected, but they also want to help their people. But then they want to get selected again, you know. So it's like, are these experts? I mean, I mean, That's look, a, right, right. Same problem with you know judges and retention elections, right? You have now well, pressures that are not related to the. Which shouldn't be a thing, by the way. I know that's kind of off topic for what we're talking about, but I'm I'm from Virginia originally, and you know the judges, all the judges there are appointed, all of them. Yeah. Right. You know, and the very idea that a judge has to worry about running for election, right? It's not even just retention in Florida. Would they run for election? I mean, there's candidates, there's ballots. You can look at their decisions they've made, and you know, and I, and I just feel like if conceptually, if I'm a judge, I shouldn't be worrying about. If I make this decision, how am I going to be viewed upon by the voting community? Is that in the back of my mind? And, and maybe subconsciously it is, and most of them, some of it's not. But you know, in federal court, oh, I'm I'm sure it is. Yeah, I mean, at, at least at least subconsciously. Well, then, um, I don't. I mean, any, and just because the judges themselves deny it and are being sincere doesn't mean it's not happening. Right. And in yeah. federal court, though, they don't. I mean, they don't worry about anything. You know, mm-hmm. it's like that old joke. What was the What's the difference between a federal court judge and God? God doesn't think he's a federal court judge. Yeah, you know? like like the uh, last and, and, year, and, last and, medical school and, still a doctor. Yeah, I mean, yeah. yeah. Although now now I think judges, federal judges, obviously no, they don't have to worry about being removed unless they're impeached. But they're certainly much more aware than they were when I started of what people say about them on Twitter and what people think about their opinions. So right. even it's, they're not even they're not immune from some of these uh, some of these forces. Yeah, I think the younger generation of federal court judges recognized because we're all so technologically connected. I mean, here we are, you know, um, Ross, what you're in D.C., Jordan's in Atlanta and I'm here down here in South Florida. And here we are sitting, you know, that's as as. Technology has made it to where we're all so available. Everything's available. So these decisions that judge make, I mean, there's there's got to be a blog for every single division, but they talk about that. So they there is some recognition, and I think that's a good thing, right? You know, that having... Uh, pub- probably a good thing, unless, unless we gradually shift to a place where judges are sort of performing all the time in their opinions right. and trying to get attention and trying to, like, send messages to... Yeah, yeah. Well, I, but, I, know, generally, transparency, I, I would say, is a good thing. But I yeah. enjoy some of the writing as a, as a reader when, I mean, I know it's a, like a federal opinion, but some of the opinions that they write that have, I would call it flavorful language, you know, sometimes there's like pop references or things like that, um, you know. And, lots, and, of, lots of Hamilton. Yeah. 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 I, I did that. No, in, there's a, there's a there's ability to the transparency of what gets disseminated through legal Twitter. But, you know, I had this debate with someone, I don't know, a month or so ago, time flies, but it wasn't that long ago. I mean, it was before I was into the profession. But when I first got in, I learned about, you know, cameras in the courtroom, cameras in the courtroom, and whether they should always be there, you know, should have an option to be there and all that. And I think there's still some merit to some of the, you know, side arguments from it. But I feel like everyone overlooked with the advent of the Internet, especially social media, everything disseminates instantaneously anyway. So, yeah, you're not always getting a live feed. But every opinion, every district court, I mean, even a magistrate's R&R can be disseminated to thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people instantly. And right. so you almost have even right. worse than what a camera would do. Well, right. And then it's not just that it's disseminated. You you have, no matter what it is, thousands or hundreds of thousands of instant critics who right. you know say horrible things about you uh, if you're a judge without knowing anything, not knowing the context, not knowing 
um, the parties, right? And I think that's that's why there is, although people don't say it publicly, there is a lot of resistance to. Yeah, a lot of a lot of Monday morning quarterback with people that may or may not have yes. legal legal degrees, and you know what should or should. Well, not plenty have. of people with legal degrees should also keep their mouth shut, though. Yeah. Even if you think you know everything about the law, like you don't know the case, you don't know. You know, people reproduce one sentence from an opinion. You know, might seem one way or the other, but you don't know what you don't know anything. You don't know what what lower court said. You don't know what the parties were arguing. You know. It's it's funny you mentioned that the one sentence because what just sticks out in my mind at University of Miami we had uh, my torch professor Professor Diamond used to be like look you can read one sentence but you can't understand that sentence until you read the one after and the read the one before right and so I think that that kind of things they'll take like one little snippet and they're like oh well that's the whole entire opinion but they don't say then there's that but or they change it. And I think you're right. right. Same thing people do, and with like you know deposition transcripts, they they selectively quote. Oh yeah, as they should. It's part of their duty. They selectively quote one exchange to make the other side look terrible or their client look virtuous. When in context, it really is anything. I think that really the rubber really meets the road on everything you guys just said with parentheticals and um, and typically multiple parentheticals in like a string side because I, early in my career, I think I, I overused them. It wasn't for any strategic reason other than I just thought, hey, the judge doesn't need to read every case. If I could just cite these four and give a sentence or two about each in a parenthetical, that's sufficient. But I've, I've kind of, the pendulum has swung back and I, I don't know where you shake out on this, but just because six cases support your position uh, doesn't need the, mean the court needs to know about all six. And now I'm very careful to pick one or two, maybe just deep dive on the one or two that matter most. I think sometimes you can almost be less persuasive by here's 50 cases that support my position. It almost just seems ridiculous, you know? No, that's right. And the problem is when people amass cases is they generally will overstate how great the line of cases is for their mm -hmm. side. It's, it, it's not, you know, we're, we're not usually so lucky in this profession that just magically every single case in the jurisdiction just happens to go the way we want. So a lot of people will paper over the, the you know, the aspects of the cases that are distinguishable uh, because they, they want to have that feeling of, look, there are 10 cases in Georgia or Florida. You're better off not having so many cases and admitting and being, you know, open about it. You're admitting a couple things don't go the way your case does and here's why they don't matter as opposed to just kind of doing a victory lap and saying i'm so lucky everything in the record 100 my side every single case ever published well then even a not very smart judge is going to wonder why you're litigating why you would have settled right, right. for that if it were that one-sided yeah. and then you know the advent of legal research tools being cheaper uh makes it even likelier now that people will amass too many cases for for the same point. So it, that's an interesting point you make. And I, I just want to tell this, this one brief story about Jordan. You always got to make sure like, look, if there's bad law, like we obviously have a duty of candor to the court and, and make them aware of adverse decision. And I find that lawyers don't do that. Right. They, they, and it's, there's no way you didn't see the case because it's clear. So we had an issue where it was an, an arbitration provision in a, uh, a rental contract and whether that provision ran with the land. Right. Mm -hmm. Jordan actually was like, look, I don't know why. And this was our response to their motion to enforce or to compel arbitration said, I don't know why they didn't cite it, but you need to be aware of this. This is a law which was adverse to us. 
but then we factually we, we, we made we distinguished the case of why it doesn't apply. Trial court agrees with us, right? The they take an appeal to the to the next level, and that that decided that case that was against us, and we got affirmed. They affirmed. Oh, that's the trial. a very that's a good end of the story. I mean, right. even yeah, if it, it had was... not, even if it had gone poorly, uh, and even if you didn't have a duty of candor. It's just for pure advocacy reasons. You want to be the one to, you know, shape the bad news, right? Not right. have it be a clerk or exactly. your opponent. Exactly. Yeah. Right. And, and it I, also I mean, it for, makes, yeah. I'm, I think a lot, I don't know, this is your experience, but what I hear from normal lawyers who have like high volume practices, the clients often, are, not that they're blaming the clients, but the clients don't want to see anything if they read the motion negative, right? They think, why, why are you like pointing out weaknesses? Um, and not realizing that in the end, that's stronger, not weaker, uh, right. because you're actually like preempting the matter. I suspect, but I don't know for sure, because I haven't been there, that those pressures are more prevalent on the defense side. Yeah, and I, I can true. understand why there's yeah. more cooks in the kitchen and accountability and you're billing for it and all that. But yeah, John and I really pride ourselves on being at least the most credible voice in the room. I, I tell people all the time, I don't really know. I couldn't name a judge that likes me. I don't know. No one's ever said it. I could probably name a, a few that I think don't, but I don't know if I can name a judge that would say, you know, he's, he's willing to like pull the wool over my eyes. You know what I mean? I'm a, yeah. And I think that's kind of right. I, and I, once, I think that, you know, once you, you, you get the sense, even when you're reading, you can kind of tell whether the lawyer is being honest about the record the case law or both. The good news is once you have earned that trust, people generally will believe what you say and not think, you know, every block quote is, misleading and vice versa of course right there's i want to no... be oh go ahead no you go ahead i was gonna say i want to be respectful of your time and i i i even was hesitant to even bring this up but i said if i don't ask ross this and who am i ever going to ask i have to ask you about the cleaned up movement or maybe it's already been cleaned up and it's on its way out i don't know because in my coming up on 10 years of, of legal writing i have never seen something come so quickly with such excitement exuberance and almost lose face plant uh, I don't even use it anymore. I used it briefly and then stopped. What what it's is so, the consensus? Yeah, what you say is so true. So I'll just explain for you know, in case people don't know. A lot of people don't know. I notice when I ask about cleaned up, they don't, they haven't heard of it. So cleaned up was, uh, it's actually something proposed by a federal government lawyer who's very very smart guy. He's written some books, I think, quite highly of him. And his idea was, uh, you know, cleaned up is sort of a good name of cleaning up citation formatting and getting rid of the things that many people find onerous or archaic, like having to bracket letters if you lowercase them or uppercase them, uh, having all the rules for ellipses, you know, not, uh, not having to say internal citation omitted, internal citation quotation omitted, you don't need to say emphasis added. So there are a number of things, you know, not having multiple reporters for the same case. So the idea was you would clean up the citation, make it simpler, more user-friendly, more modern, and then just so everyone knew that's what you were doing, you'd put in parentheses, I believe, at the end of the citation, cleaned, cleaned up. up, right? So that, like, exactly, you said it perfectly. I mean, it's fascinating because nothing ever really changes in the profession. It takes like 100 years. But this did take off, like, almost nothing I've ever seen as far as a reform goes. But, you know, with change, you always get pushback. Mm -hmm. And a lot of judges especially are skeptical. They, they're concerned that... Um, for example, if you don't make people put brackets around the first letter of a of a the first word of a quote, 
if they're lowercasing or uppercasing it, then now the court won't know if it was in the middle of the sentence in the first place and so forth. So yeah, it's a very good example of all those things, right? Frustration, everyone's frustrated. Someone proposes a solution, maybe it goes a little too far, then there's immediate pushback, and then we're back to the same problem. Hyperlinking, which I know we discussed earlier, might make all this moot, right? And, and then you won't have to argue about citation form. So there you go. Yeah. Yeah, well, look, I, I uh, can't thank you enough for joining us. I really mean that. Somebody like you, I mean, I've, I've, I've taken so much from you, really. I, I owe you a, a, a debt that I could probably never repay. And I, I, I'll, but I'll, I'll continue to pay the subscription for Brief Catch. So I guess we're even. But uh, Ross, thank you so much for joining us today. Really, I hope everybody yeah. out there, thank you. I'm sure they learned a ton. Uh, maybe you can just tell everyone where they can reach you. I know briefcatch.com, obviously, for the product, but in case maybe other people out there, they, they're running a firm, maybe they want you to come in and speak and all that, tell everyone where they can reach you. Yeah, this, this guy should go into sales. You just product placement, holds up your books. Yeah, it's good. Gives your website out. You don't have to do anything. Uh, yeah, so briefcatch.com for the software, uh, legalwritingpro.com for everything else. I'm actually kind of phasing out workshops, uh, which is hard for me, even me to believe, but I've I've done almost 3,000 of them, wow. uh, but I have other uh, on-demand tools and the like all accessible from the site. So thanks to you you two as well. Yeah. Uh, it's fun talking to you and thanks to all your your listeners uh, too. All right. Awesome. All right. Thanks, thanks. Have a good rest of the summer. Thanks for checking out the John and Jordan on Justice podcast. If you enjoyed today's content, consider leaving us a review and be sure to subscribe wherever you heard this podcast so you never miss an episode. For more information or to connect with John and Jordan, check out at OnJusticePod on Instagram and Twitter or check out Discord for PlaintiffAttorneys.com to communicate with them and like-minded plaintiff attorneys in a private Discord server. Until next time, this is the John and Jordan on Justice Podcast. Podcast.